Hey everyone, welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for music, movies and more. I'm your host, Max Bowen. Well, it is October, so it is only fitting that we talk some horror. So for this episode, I'm hanging with Kevin Lucia to talk about his new book, October Nights, available on October 22nd through Crystal Lake Publishing. This is a collection of four amazingly horrifying tales, all contained within the fictitious town of Clifton Heights. We talk all about the world of Clifton Heights, how it came to be, and why it's been the setting for so many of Kevin's works. We also look at the four stories contained in this new book and how this is something of a dream of his for so many years. Well, it's October, so it is only fitting we talk some horror. Right now, joining me is author Kevin Lucia to talk about his soon-to-be-released book, October Nights. Kevin, welcome to the show. It is so cool to have you here. Thank you. It's, it's awesome to be here. All right. Now, there is so much to dive into, this book being a collection of four connected Halloween tales, all taking place in the town of Clifton Heights. I want to start there, because reading okay. your background, the other works you've done over the years, how did this become the setting for so many of your of your stories? So, um, you know, I've always been a fan of, uh, you know, authors who do that. Like, you know, uh, uh, Ray Bradbury has his Greentown, Illinois, and Charles Grant had Oxrun Station. Of course, we know Stephen King has Castle Rock. Uh, Gary Brombeck uh, has Cedar Hill. So I've always enjoyed, and like I, even literary texts like Winesburg, Ohio by uh, Sherwood Anderson. So I had always kind of envisioned I'd like to have this town that I write about. And we used to vacation up in the Adirondacks all, you know, growing up. And then before we had kids, my wife and I uh, went up there. And there's just something about the atmosphere up there. You know, it's just kind of got that fish. So it's so isolated, all the woods up there and things like that. And I sort of kind of developed my own like little town there. It just started with a short story or two. And pretty soon I realized that, the short stories had characters that were side characters in one short story, just in passing. Then I'd write a short story entirely about that character, you know, and the idea was to kind of create this web, you know, a lot like, again, like, um, you know, uh, Charles Grant's Oxford Station novels. And, uh, and I just, yeah, that's, that's how it started. And, and how similar is like your Clifton Heights to the real thing? Are they like uh, carbon copies? There actually isn't a Clifton Heights. There is a, not, not in the Adirondacks anyway, there is a Clifton Park, uh, and that's, I think, in New York, and I only discovered that after I started writing, but it's a, a complete fabrication. It's a, you know, it's a hodgepodge of areas that I knew as a kid growing up at Harpersville, uh, areas, you know, where I live now in uh, at Castle Creek, New York, and Binghamton, New York, and, and in places in the Adirondacks, so it's kind of my own creation just modeled from, you know, areas of my experience and things like that. Hmm. Uh, how long did it take to actually like, build this community? Well, you know, like I said, it, um, it started with just a short story or two. Because what I wanted to do about 10, goodness, is about 10 years ago? About 10 years ago, I was trying to write a novel in this town. And I really hadn't, uh, it really hadn't gotten to the point where I could finish stories very well. And then the novel is kind of falling apart. And I realized that, well, you've got a lot of character vignettes here that could be stories. So I wrote a short story taking place in Clifton Heights and sold it. Then I sold a couple more stories. And and it really didn't coalesce until my first uh, short story collection, Things Slipped Through, uh, back in 2013. 
Uh, you know, I, I had sold a story to uh, Joe Mindhart at Crystal Lake when they were just starting out. And um, he just basically approached me and said, I love this story. Do you have a collection of mine? Uh, and I said, well, yes, I do have a collection, but this is what I want to do. I don't want to do a straight collection. I want it to be a linked narrative like Martian Chronicles or Dandelion Wine or something like that. And he's like, that sounds great. And that's what started it. And then just everything I wrote after that just kind of ended up building on it, you know, and for me, I'm, I just imagine all the people that are in this town like, and like the type of horror that I like to write. I mean, I, I love uh, schlocky 80s trash horror slasher flicks as much as the next guy. But when it comes to what I write, I like writing about people and their problems and their conflicts. And when you think of a small town, and especially you think of all the, the marginalized people that might live in that small town, or even if they aren't marginalized, even if they're higher up the food chain, they're still isolated by their status, things like that. I realized the story potential here was unlimited. You know, when you think about, you know, and I, and I like, I'm very much informed by Stephen King. So I like writing stories about the guy who runs the landfill or just, just poor, this guy who works at the auto shop or things like that. People that just wouldn't, you know, go missing and maybe we wouldn't really notice it too much. And that's how it just kind of spiraled out from there. Yeah, I definitely got that reading your stories, like the characters you create, for example, Long Night in the Valley and your character for that, you know, this like former, a former a basketball star who, because of just a, you know, accident loses his entire career, his entire future. You really got the pain in his life, the way he talked and his actions, like everything spoke to this you know, regrettable choice and the life that he was supposed to have. And now he's working for like, like a junk collector. He's just, yeah. just kind of yeah. existing. He's not really like living. Um, I want to ask about your characters though. Do you ever base them on like real people that you kind of knew? So, you know, uh, like a lot of young writers, when I was in high school, uh, you know, cause I started writing in high school. I think I finished my first novel by the time I was a senior in high school. And it was this, uh, Put it this way, it was the opposite of whatever Long Night in the Valley was. My, 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 my novel had the kid winning the state championship, winning his girlfriend back and, you know, all this, you know, and when you're a kid, you have, you kind of just take your fantasy of what you want yourself to be and you write about a lot. And then I tried my hand at science fiction. A lot of my science fiction sounded like kind of warmed over Star Trek novels. I remember very clearly. Uh, I was working, it was, it was, uh, toward the end of my college career. I was like, man, I'm in debt. I need to get out of debt. So I picked up a bunch of extra jobs. And one of those jobs was like third shift at a gas station, you know, in a somewhat seedier part of town. And, uh, I was listening to my coworker, uh, one night talk about her life. And in some ways it was kind of almost stereotypical. She was a single mom trying to raise her kids. She's talking about trying to make rent the next week, you know, and, you know, so-and-so, my, my, my ex won't pay the, uh, you know, um, the, uh, I can't remember what it's called. Now when you get divorced, they, they won't pay the, um, alimony. Uh, and alimony. Yeah. Yeah. And I just had this like little flair and I'm like, this is what real people are like. You know, you're writing these, uh, square jawed dimpled heroes in your sci-fi stories but and that was right around the time that i started reading stephen king like the very the first two novels that i read by him were 
uh, the stand and desperation. And but I had that that threshold moment when the, this is what real people are like. These are what real stories are like. And it took many more years to really gestate that. But I really began, you know, thinking about people and looking at people. And a lot of times, you know, you'll be out and you'll just see someone doing something and it'll just stick in your head. You're like, why was that person doing that? You know, or, uh, you know, just just imagining their stories. And that was a really important, you know, as far as like, look at the world and don't create this idealistic, you know, hero, you know, look out at all the people in the world and kind of find your stories there. How do you know when you've kind of nailed a character that they're ready to be in your book? Oh, well, I know when I've nailed a character, uh, when I, I find myself understanding them, I know what it is they're afraid of, you know, I know what it is they uh, desperately are trying to achieve or, you know, how they failed. You know, I always say that, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm there when I'm, I, you know, I'll start out with the barest sketch and I'm writing some things down and, and then I'll just sink right into me like, oh, this is what he's afraid of, you know, or this is how he failed. And this is trying to, how, this is how he's trying to redeem himself. And maybe I already know he's going to try to redeem himself and it's not going to work out. You know, so what I really feel like I've gotten there and I got that emotional resonance and there's been a lot of characters where I just kind of tapped out and said, yeah, I'm not feeling anything for this at all, you know, but I'll know when I've got that. It just strikes that emotional chord in there. I'm like, yeah, that, that, this is the, what I want to write about. Mm. So do you have this like cutting room floor, just kind of full of all the characters who just like didn't make it for you? Oh yeah. I'm like every writer. I'm a pack rat. I've got a file just labeled stuff. Cause you know, I never throw anything away and I'm like, well, that guy didn't work for that story, but you know, maybe we'll, we'll be able to fulfill him in a different story somewhere else and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. There, there comes that line where I'm just like, I don't really care about what's happening to this character. So I'm like, well, we'll just put that aside and we'll move on to something else. Yeah. Cause I think with horror, especially there's that trope of the cannon fodder, the character that is just there to be murdered and they bring nothing right. to the story. You don't care yeah. when they're dead. They're just there to be like a blood splatter on the wall. I'll never forget when I was reading um, the dark, I was reading one of Stephen King's dark tower novels and not to uh, drop a spoiler, but he killed someone. And I was so mad. I'm like, I love this guy. How can you? And that was again, another like, Oh, you got to get people to really care about this person, you know? And, and like people are always complaining, Oh, Stephen King will spend, he'll spend 10 pages on a postman and then kill him. And I'm like, no, that's great. I mean, if you just you know talk about a postman and he gets killed, nobody cares. But if we know this postman is divorced and has one kid at home and he's trying to hold, and then he dies, then you're like, oh, that's not fair, you know. And that was that was a, again another threshold moment when Stephen King killed that character, and I was so mad. I'm like, that's that's important to note to note that. Exactly, exactly. Um, how about creating the settings for these things? Um, I read that you get a lot of your inspiration from like folklores and myths. So is that like a real crucial part of the story process? Like looking up these different like myths to try and bring into the story? Yeah. Yes. And I, and I, I, I love doing that. That was an Achilles heel early on because I, I felt too much pressure to be, to be super loyal to the myth. But, you know, as, as my reading you know, and Charles Grant did a really good job with this, where maybe he'll use the myth 
as a, a jumping off point. And you do have to, of course, be careful, um, you know, depending on what type of myth you're playing with. Like if you're playing with Native American myth or an African myth, you do want to be careful of cultural appropriation and things like that. But I found that a lot of these myths, I mean, they're myths for a reason because they've been all tradition is maybe change the roots of them or there's, I mean, I remember teaching in junior high that there's 700 different versions of the Cinderella story. Every culture has a Cinderella story. So what I learned over time is that's a great, great, uh, for, like, for example, last uh, uh, year I wrote a novella that'll be coming out in a collection pretty soon about a gigantic spider god. And I was able to find a lot of, and I sort of patched together my own little thing. But you know, I found all these different cultures that revere spiders and things like that. And then you can kind of make your own thing that sort of sounds plausible because people might have heard that somewhere. And that's, yeah, I do, I do enjoy doing that. Yeah. I got nothing against these other cultures, but if spiders are their god, I want nothing to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yep. see a spider, I kill it. The end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I want to ask about about uh, cultural uh, about cultural appropriation. Obviously, a very serious topic, yeah. something you should definitely avoid in the writing. But how do you do that? How do you sort of take enough from the story to put it in yours without kind of crossing the line? You know, it's really, really tough. And this is one of those things where I think it's best framed as a conversation. You know, because not everybody is going to be on the same page. Not, not everyone's even aware of doing it. Like, uh, for example, I have a novel that I'll be sending out to uh, agents here pretty soon. It's basically a weird Western uh, with Billy the Kid and the Regulators and flesh-eating monsters. And I had a character in there that was uh, like this uh, half, half, uh, half white, half Apache. You know, I, I was did, did study my, you know, some of my Apache backgrounds and things like that. And one of my early beta readers said, I love this, and I love this character. He said, some of your readers might be a little upset because you've made a magical Indian. I'm like, at that point in my life, I'm like, I didn't even know what a magical Indian was. So I went and Googled it, and then I read it, and I'm like, crap. I know <laughs> well, magical <but>. Indian. <laughs> Oops. So we had to do uh, some work on that character. I think the, the biggest thing is, is um, my feeling is, are you, and this is, again, this is what I think, I, w I wish things like this were framed more as conversations and less accusatory. Of course, the people who are doing it also need to be sensitive enough if someone says, hey, you've kind of done this, not to be like, oh, you know, we should, there should be an open dialogue. I think if you're writing a story and you have authentic cultural characters in there who are the main characters and they're not just props to set things up, then I think you're on the right track. Uh, I, I wrote a story that I have yet to sell uh, that involves uh, Native American trickster gods, but I made all of the main characters Native American. I didn't use them just to. Another good example is um, on Shudder, uh, I recently watched a, a series called Trickster, and it's wonderful, highly recommend it. It's set in a Native American community and all your main characters are Native Americans. The writers are Native Americans. So this is not the case of a cultural appropriation. This is, you know, your main characters are Native American. They're not using it as a prop 
to let our non-Native Americans go. You know, and, and that's probably the, if you're on the right track, but it really involved, it needs to involve conversation. Because like I said, I, I didn't even know what Magical Indian was until someone pointed it out to me. And I'm like, oh, you're right, I need to change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I I really like your approach to it and your thoughts on them because I agree it cannot be while on the one hand we definitely need to be sensitive and 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 respect other cultures. People pointing out need to stop with the torches and pitchforks. It doesn't help. It needs to be a yeah. a calm, rational discussion that everyone can learn something from. Yes. Uh, last year, so I, I teach high school English as well. And uh, last year, my 12, 12 AP, uh, you, we did a unit on horror and race, you know, and we talked openly about Lovecraft. And, you know, I think the, the biggest issue there is the one side saying burn all of Lovecraft's works, never read them ever again. The other far side is completely tone deaf. How dare you criticize Lovecraft when really we should be having an honest conversation. We can we can uh, be grateful for the gift that Lovecraft gave us in the outer gods and his mythos. I always joke that my favorite Lovecraftian writer is not Lovecraft. <laughs> you know, he's, you know, he's, his mythos is wonderful. His writing inconsistent. Um, but we can be thankful for, and, and also be aware of how big of an impact that's played on sci-fi fantasy and horror. But we have to be honest. Once you unpack the racism box, there's a lot of those stories where he's describing Aboriginal people with ape-like faces and big lips, and you're like, but there needs to be a conversation there. And that's what I told my kids last year in that unit. we got to be honest about this stuff here. I mean, he, he did name one of his cats and the rats and the walls a, a racial slur, you know, but we also, and there needs to be a talk. We need to talk about it and not, like I said, you know, go at each other with pitchforks. Exactly, exactly. So let us move on to diving into the stories of October Nights. Four stories in, in this book, all connected. You've got a priest hearing, hearing a ghostly confession that comes into play later on in the story. A young man offered a chance to remake his entire, his entire fortune at great cost. A pastor fleeing the death uh, of his daughter comes to Clifton Heights to face his fears and lives a nightmare instead. And two people with supernatural talents facing off with an engine of darkness and pain. I love these different concepts. Going through the process, though, of deciding what to flesh out and pursue as a story, what were you looking for for this particular collection that sort of decided, okay, this idea we're going to f- work with, this idea, get rid of it? What I really wanted is I wanted four different types of Halloween stories. Keeping in mind that, again, for me, um, horror is about people and Halloween is a night of transformation. It's a night of endings. It's a night of beginnings, the night when the, the veils thin. And I want to use that as a vehicle for talking about people. Obviously it, it allows supernatural shenanigans to happen, but I want to talk about, but I also wanted each story to be very, you know, different, you know, whereas in the, uh, um, the Rage of Achilles is a Halloween story and it's a haunting, um, but it's also very on a personal level about uh, the autistic boy and things like that. Um, the, uh, I like to think of Long Night in the Valley uh, as a uh, Halloween Twilight Zone episode. You know, that, that's my feeling about that. Um, the end story, uh, um, One Last Pitch, uh, that one, uh, I wanted a, just an action 
one that moves, everything happens in one night, the chapters end up getting very, very short, and I wanted that classic good versus evil. Um, the Last Will and Testament of the not-so-good Reverend Ford, um, that is very much a longer tale where he spends time in Clifton Heights, uh, and it's very much kind of a soul-searching, facing your demons, coming to grips with your failures, um, and, you know, a, a quest for redemption that may work out a little bit differently than Long Night in the Valley. And I wanted them to all be different, but I wanted them to move. You know what I mean? There was one story that was originally in there, um, and it just wasn't moving. It was called uh, Daughter of the Mists, uh, and it was about, it's obviously, again, we never throw anything away. It was about a, a cinephile who works at the library at Clifton Heights, and he, he absolutely loves the old black and white movies, you know, for their purity and their nobility. So he reveres the old black and white, um, you know, monsters. And I created a lesser known actress and a character. And he just feels there's so much above the tawdry monsters of today until he accidentally channels this being into life and finds out that this being that he's revered is just as bloodthirsty and nasty and but it wasn't going anywhere it wasn't moving anywhere so i said that's it's slow this might just be a short novel on its own it's not gonna you know with a collection of four novellas you want it to be just long enough to engage but there's gonna be another story after this and there's a couple stories so i felt like i was hitting daughter of the mist and it was just grinding really really slow so I decided to replace it with a not-so-good Reverend Ford because that was a very experimental work that I thought, you know what, we'll just stick in there. Because what happened was I just went through this kind of binge where I was just watching every low-budget 80s movie I possibly could watch. Everything from Basket Case to Berserker to uh, Maniac, just the edge of the axe, and all these. But what I started doing is, is realizing that even in the cheesiest of uh, horror movies, there's still a kernel of, well, this is why this movie's happening. This is what's, but also too, I'm an English teacher, so my mind always, my mind is always interpreting even the, the, the lowest common denominator. I'm thinking, well, the subtext here is, like even a movie like Frank, even a movie like Frankenhooker. I'm like, well, the subtext of this movie is. So what I started developing was uh, I did I hadn't fleshed it out into the story yet, but I would watch these movies and I would jot down this narrative of someone who's watching all these movies and slowly having the subtext of these movies impinging on his life in a very real way. And then that's where the story of a not so good Reverend Ford. Because he's not only a disgraced pastor, he's a closet horror fan. You know, because being a pastor, you know, especially in stricter congregations, this is, you know, verboten. You know, and he, as he's going to Clif goes to Clifton Heights, you know, checks into like one of the, uh, like a, a, a cabin there. And he starts just watching horror movies to try to escape. But what he's finding is those horror movies are not letting him escape because they're circling right back onto him and feeding into what's happening. And that just seemed to be, that's fairly long in itself, but it, it never hit that dead spot that Daughter of the Mists hit 
so I, I swapped it out. Okay. All right. Now, I know that this is also a bit of like a life goal for you to publish a collection of Halloween-themed stories. Yeah, I love Halloween. Yep. Yeah. Uh, um, what about the holiday? Do you like so much? I'm many levels. Obviously, just being just being a kid, you know, uh, just that I, that idea of the whole month of October is leading up to Halloween, and that one night when you obviously I don't trigger treat anymore. But we take our kids trigger treating, um, and uh, you know I love it when we go to people who've like gone done their houses up to the nines and things like that. We we have a town that's near us where the whole town just you know the whole several blocks of the town do their porches up and things like that. And it's always, you know, I love seeing that. You know, I went to, uh, I took my daughter and her friends to Reaper's Revenge the other night and did the, like the Haunted Hayride and things like that. And I, so I just love the, you know, uh, oh, the, the the pageantry of it. It's October. I, I'm a horror fan all year long. You know, I watch horror, all, but when I hit that, you hit that mid-September and the leaves are out and it's got that, you know, you're walking out here and those crickets chirping in, in the evening. I just feel like there's something different in the air. You know, I, I've always wanted to write something specific, specifically set in that. Like, I'm actually finishing up another Halloween novel, a, a full novel right now. And I'll just go out and sit on the front porch in the early evening and, like, listening to the crickets and writing this thing and just kind of channeling that fall energy in there. You know, and I've never... I just never written any explicit books for Halloween. And last spring I started putting it together. And then I asked Joe at Crystal Lake, so you got an October slot. And he's like, I do. I'm like, all right then. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, Crystal Lake because I have had a number of writers on the show that have been published through that company. And definitely folks, if you love horror, check out Crystal Lake Publishing. They have some of the best out there. How did you come to their attention? And what's it been like working with them? So uh, back in 2012, I think, I sold a short story to one of their very first anthologies. I think it's called uh, For Fear of the Night. And Joe just outright, he bought it, and then he emailed me and said, I love this story. Uh, and he, I was, they had only put out two collections at that point. And uh, he said, I love the story. Do you have a collection? And I said, I do, but I've got this wacky idea of a link collection. He totally ran with it. Um, so I've been with him from the beginning. And what I love about Joe is, you know, the small press in many ways is, is, is the, I, I can't speak for science fiction and romance and crime fiction. I don't know anything about those genres. But for the horror genre, Throughout the generations, the small press has been kind of like the backbone and the lifeblood. Like every time uh, in the 80s and then uh, more recently, about 10 years ago, when leisure fiction fell apart, when the big publishers, there's a sag and horror, the small press is always there. And I think with the ease of POD publishing and ebooks, some small presses have really stepped up to the plate and really done a great job. Now, what I like about Joe, though, is a lot of small presses have started out awesome, then flamed out. Or they simply didn't. The very first press that I worked for or worked with was Shroud Publishing back in 2010. They actually published my first novella like in a series um, 
And uh, it, was a, it was basically a series character that they hired us all to write. And I used to work for the magazine. And it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, product. But it was basically run by one guy. You know, and after a while, kids, you start kids, life, you're just not able to do it anymore. And then, but then some publishing companies end up overburdening themselves with too many titles, too many releases. Uh, that was another publishing company devourer of souls is a clifton heights book but it was originally published with ragnarok and they uh they just put too many books out and again that was a two three man operation and they just kind of buried themselves joe has been really smart about gauging okay i need to slow down a little bit i'm going to limit how many books i accept next year you know i'm getting a little burned out you know so he's been able to you know i mean They've been going for over almost like, uh, you know, 10 years now, you know, and they've done a really nice job. He's also really done a really smart job of separating my personal finances and the publishers, publishers, because a lot of small presses have done that, too, where you get the idea that they're financing this out of their own pocket. And while that may be noble, uh, if you have a financial emergency come up and now you can't pay your royalties or you can't pay for so he's done a really good job every year they do a kickstarter campaign to make sure their projects are funded for the year ahead you know and he's just a really really good job uh doing that and i would say there are people out there that are fans of crystal lake as a publisher period which means that when books come out they're lining up to buy the new crystal lake book which is really nice as an author to know that you're working with a publisher that has built in you know built-in fans so so it's been great working with them you know and so excellent, excellent. Now, earlier on, you mentioned that you are an English teacher, and I also yep. read the uh, that you are also an ebook and trade paperback editor for Cemetery Dance Publications. I'm curious how that's impacted you as a writer. Do you find yourself like self editing a lot? So, uh, the ebook job is very recent, I just got that within the last three weeks. Uh, the uh, ebook and the ebook editor at uh, uh, Cemetery Days used to be Norman Prentice, and he and I are good friends. And he let me let me know that he was moving on. So I've been working with Cemetery Dance in some capacity for again the last six or seven years. And I threw my hat in the ring um, because they also want to start a new trade paperback line, which Cemetery Dance has always been a limited edition publisher for years. But they want to do what they want to do is they now want to enter the small press game as a traditional publisher their books can be ordered in bookstores and i and i i think that'd be great and that would you know uh, that, would, that would i think it would enhance them it would enhance the horror community that hasn't really impacted me too yet because i just started I, i'm only gonna take submissions over the summer because i have my summer off so right now i'm just working with marketing the books that are already there um as far as being a teacher so, and my if my beta reader ends up um, watching this video, he'll probably get a good laugh. When you're in teacher mode and when you're in writer mode, I find them to be distinctly two different modes. Um, so I'm in teacher mode during the day where I'm grading kids' essays and things like that. And um, I would like to say that I put out fairly clean copy uh, because of that experience. I'm also... I'll go through and edit a draft at least three or four times before I send it to my beta reader. But my beta reader who really knows his grammar will make comments and be like, how can you do this in the subjunctive mood? I thought you were an English teacher. And I'm like, 
dude, I was worried more about the character and their development, you know. So I found that people, I even think with, you know, that that strict grammarian brain or story brain. And, um, you know, when I'm writing, I'm mostly in the story, you know. I don't, you know although being an English teacher has helped me as far as editing my own work, I don't really apply the same grammar rules a teacher would then to my own writing because I'm really just concerned about the story. I get you. Now, you mentioned having a beta reader, and um, I wanted to ask about how their input influenced October Nights. Do you want it making a lot of changes based on their own feedback? Um, so actually, this time, the beta reader did not get October Nights. The turnaround was so fast on this, and we had a very, very short window. Um, uh, luckily, Crystal Lake uh, had uh, several beta readers on hand that were able to give me very good feedback. Usually the feedback uh, from my beta reader is, um, you know, let me know if the story is slowing down a little bit or um, I, he likes to joke that I have a terminal case of conjunctivitis that I like to start set. I like to, I like to start sentences with conjunctions all the time. I, he jokes and says, if you could put five, if you could put five conjunctions in a sentence, you would. And I'm like, yes, yes. That's, um, that's, that's unfortunately reading too much William Faulkner and Ray Bradbury. But uh, um, usually the remarks are stylistic, few notes, typos here. You know, occasionally they'll be like, this, this paragraph does not add anything to the story at all. You know, and then, um, you know, I'll cut it out and things like that. So I did have one editor uh, from Mystery Road, which is a limited edition from Cemetery Dance, who just viewed me. I had, a, I had a scene where a character does something really violent. And my, my editor's like, I ha you have to take that out. He said, you just destroyed all the empathy that you've built up for this character with this one act. And I tried to soften it a little bit to keep it in. And he's like, no, you don't understand. It's got to go. And then I once he, I did that, I could see, yeah, okay, that's that's better. That, 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 that makes more sense. Mm -hmm. So I'm always very open to critique. I, I, think, I don't think there's any other way to go about it, really. Oh, definitely, definitely. But do you ever have a moment where someone will say, okay, this has to happen, and your response is, nope, it's got to stay. I'm not moving on this one. <laughs> once, once. Um, and ironically, this editor who thought very highly of himself not too long after that absolutely burned all of his bridges in the horror community is now completely uh, excommunicado for something different. One of my short stories um, that uh, was in um, the uh, the horror library series, I had the character was on a lonely highway stopping at a uh, one of those big 24-hour rest station things. And, you know, for some reason, the editor was convinced that the front door couldn't be an all-glass door. And I was like, I had to, I Google, I just Googled it and sent them like five pictures of all these service stations where the whole front of the service station was all glass. I'm like, are, 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 are you kidding me? And he finally bent and he let me do it. But I was like, and I, I was wondering about that. I'm like, that's, that, that, he was really like, that seems to be a weird thing to be a very, and he was a little bit arrogant about it. I'm like, okay, well, here's the five pictures that prove me wrong. And it wasn't too long after that, that his arrogance got him into trouble and now he's not even a blip on the horror the horror uh, genre. So that, that was really the only time. Most of the time, people will suge suggest stuff to me and be like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I see that. I see how that could be made better." 
Glassdoor on a service station. That is a weird hill to die on. Yeah, I, that's what I thought too. I was like, um, okay. <laughs> would it have? Would it like? Would it have actually done anything if you would change it to be just like a wood door or a metal door? I don't know what he wanted. I, I, I it was just, it was just such an odd, absurd thing. I was just like, look, here's five pictures that prove you wrong. I'm not changing. Exactly. Like, All right, I'll go with it this time. Like, yeah. right, okay. <laughs> well, thank you like so I much. It. <laughs> it wasn't too long after that that same attitude got him into a lot of trouble. Yeah, sounds yeah. it. Sounds it. Now, this next question, I imagine, is like picking your favorite child. But is there any story in October 9th that you think is your personal favorite? I'm going to say the one that I'm most proud of and that I put the most of myself into and the one that I'm most terrified that people will be not like would be the not so good Reverend Ford. Uh, that was very, you know, um, coming from a, um, you know, a Christian upbringing myself and uh, considering myself a practicing Christian but also uh, very much being at odds with how that's played out publicly over the last couple of years with, you know, we don't want to go into tangents about, about politics or, or COVID or anything like that, but even just being a growing up in the church and, um, you know, not being allowed to question things and not being allowed to, you know, uh, be your own person. You know, you're told growing up that, that God loves everyone for who they are, as long as you act this way, you know? And so I put a lot of that into that story, you know, not as an attempt to necessarily skewer Christianity, because I still consider myself a practicing Christian. But for me, fiction is, fiction is a, a canvas for me to really wrestle with these things that I, I, I really struggle with. It's a really, you know, and that one will put, a, especially again, as a father of a daughter, um, I put a lot of myself into that story, a lot of my own fears. It's not it, that what happens in that story between him and his wife and his kids has no relation to my life at all. But there was a lot of that deep, dark fears and things like that of my own that I that I put into that story. Okay, I read that um, last spring, back when the pandemic was at its like really most intense height, uh, you saw the publication of your first hardcover limited edition novella. Mystery Road, and which I imagine was uh, was an amazing experience, especially during such a weird time when like all the things that go along with writing and you know, going to cons and expos and festivals just could not happen. But yeah. how has the last year and a half been for you? And did the events ever influence you as a writer? So, um, you know, initially during the pandemic, I think I was a lot like everybody else where I found myself, uh, I couldn't, I mean, and I was a teacher and we were obviously sent home for the rest of the year and uh, we were trying to virtual teach. We didn't even know how to do it. And I had all this free time on my hands. And you're like, man, you could have banged out all this writing. I don't think I wrote a thing. Like I was just so, I couldn't even read. I found myself watching lots of movies, uh, but I just was, and yeah, it was a weird because here's, here's my box of Cemetery Dance books shows up at my house. I'm like, oh, awesome. I can't go anywhere. I can't sell any of these books. And the, one of my favorite memes uh, that a lot of writers were passing around, and I can't even remember what it, what it looks like. The top meme like shows like a whole city on fire. 
And the bottom meme shows Will Ferrell going like this. It's like, hey, want to buy my book? So you kind of felt like, here's everyone's going through all this. And, and I was like, oh, I got a book if you want to buy it, you know. Um, last year turned out to be pretty good, though. We went back to school. We were one of the only schools in our area that managed to go back five days a week. Uh, because we're a small uh, private school, so we were able to manage the social distancing and all the things that were. But we had kids at home. We had kids at school. Um, I was able to get back into the writing, but I didn't really write anything COVID related. You know, in fact, most of the stuff I was writing, I was just sort of pretending COVID never happened. Like uh, October Nights takes place in an alternate universe where COVID never happened. You know, um, but ironically enough, I. The novel that I'm writing now is about a different small town up in the Adirondacks. And it was about this evil that was slowly taking over the town. And I was sort of grappling with the mechanics of that until I realized, I'm like, if you just do a super ultra small town that had to quarantine and everyone's staying indoors and no one's going out, this becomes really easy for the evil. So, so uh, I've got now, uh, uh, again, you start with the human element first. I've got a really small town that's almost like it's already in a self-induced coma because of COVID restrictions. And then this evil gets introduced. So while everyone's isolating at home, everyone's uh, remote learning in school, remote working, you got this thing picking people off one by one. Nobody really knows any difference anyway, because even if people are not going to virtual school, Everyone's got Zoom burnout and things like that. So that was the first time that that actually, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to write about COVID during COVID because that's just, you know, you write, especially for me, I write about difficult things after they, after I process them and happen. So. Yeah. I, I feel like any book that really puts COVID into it is running the risk of getting some serious backlash. Like one of my favorite authors recently put out a new book and COVID it's not really like the story, but it's in the background of the story. And I, and I always thought, right. you know, I read to get away from reality and here it yeah. is back in my face. So I kind of right. had some mixed feelings. I mean, it, they weren't making light of it. It was just sort of part of the right. scenery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's definitely tricky. Um, well, now that we are seeing the return of things like uh, book festivals and comic cons, places where people, where authors like you yeah. usually go to, you know, share your work. Are you feeling good enough to go out there again? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'm uh, my, I'm vaccinated. My whole family's vaccinated. So this summer, uh, we went back to Scares That Care uh, charity convention out of Williamsburg. Had a wonderful time. Um, you know, and uh, about two weeks ago, we did a Halloween um, horror book signing at the Barnes and Noble at Wilkes Barre, PA, and that was an outdoor event because it was really nice. But it was. It was nice to get back out there. And it's like, it's one of those things where once you've had, which everyone should be vaccinated, things like that. And like I said, if, if tomorrow they told us we had to quarantine again, obviously I, I do it. I wouldn't be, I don't think anybody would be happy about it. But I think at a certain point, you've had your shots, you're being safe. You either have a choice of not attending these events ever again, or... I, and like scares and care was handled very well. It was going to be non it was going to be non mass mandatory. But then with the Delta spikes, they just said, okay, during the convention is mass mandatory again, you know, which was, was fine. You know, it was just so nice to get out there, you know, and I've got a couple other appearances uh, would, and I've got plenty of books because I have books just sitting here for a whole year and a half. I wasn't able to sell. So 
So it's nice to get back out again. Yeah, definitely. Excellent, excellent. Well, Kevin, uh, I am thoroughly enjoying October Nights uh, and definitely recommend highly to folks. This comes out October 22nd through Crystal Lake Publishing. You go to Kevin Lucia, that's L-U-C-I-A.blogspot.com. You'll, uh, you'll find all the links to purchase the work, follow his socials, and much more. And Kevin, thank you once again, and definitely looking forward to the next uh, conversation. Awesome. Thank you. Hey guys, what's going on? This is Brian Murphy from One Time Mountain, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout with Max Bowen. Rock on! Okay, everyone, that brings this episode to a close. Big thanks to Kevin for joining me, and be sure to pick up your copy of October Nights, available on October 22nd through Crystal Lake Publishing. I've got my copy already, and i got to tell you folks, it is amazing. Perfect for this Halloween. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout, and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com, and follow the show wherever you check out podcasts. As always, keep those ears open, and happy Halloween.